0: I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. All right. Welcome back everyone to another episode of a Dealmakers DNA. I'm excited to have our guest today. Our guest is uh, Randolph Mank. Randolph has an extensive resume, so I'm not gonna read it all, but hit on a few highlights. Randolph joined the Canadian Foreign Service in 1981, serving in Athens, Greece, Stockholm, Jakarta. He was a former uh, Canadian dignitary and ambassador to Pakistan, Malaysia, and Indonesia. Vice President of Asia uh, for BlackBerry for a few years there. President Asia Pacific of SIGMA as well as a few other boards, Canada, Asia and Business Council, Chamber of Commerce in Singapore. And uh, he's now the president of Mank Global that uh, he started in 2015. So Randolph, uh, I know I, I skipped a few things there, but I'm sure they will come out as we uh, continue our discussion. But thank you very much for uh, joining me.
1: My pleasure, thanks for that introduction.
0: No, absolutely. So Randolph, you landed up in Asia, spent a lot of, a lot of years there. But you started in, you know, a little town outside of London, I believe it was, or somewhere near there. T- tell me about your, your, your background. How did, you, how did you land up in Asia? I mean, you know, it's a far leap from Ontario.
1: Sometimes I wonder myself, you know, I was born in, uh, in Kitchener at the hospital because there was no hospital in the little village where I live, which is called New Dundee, which isn't actually far from... Uh, from Kitchener-Waterloo. It's a little village. It's, uh, it has a, a little lake. It's quite picturesque, but it really only had two shops down in the center of the village. And we grew up in a, uh, when I look at it now, we had a little cottage that was two rooms. And there were nine of us in there, two parents and seven children. I was the baby. And uh, there was no plumbing or anything like that. There was an outhouse. So it was virtually a log cabin in New Dundee, Ontario. And my dad sadly died when he was 46 years old and left my mom all to her own devices to raise us seven brats. Mm. And uh, she did a remarkable job. So I'm a feminist by uh, by nature in, uh, in the belief in the strength of women and, and their leadership. But how I got from there to uh, where I've wound up is... Uh, is a long convoluted story. I, I was the first in my family to go to university and uh, I actually failed high school. I, I'm sorry to admit, but uh, I didn't graduate because I uh, I had trouble with one of the math courses. So I actually uh, decided I, I wanted to go anyway because I had a high school teacher that told me I couldn't. I didn't have the stuff to do that. I'm studying to be an auto mechanic. I have two years towards my class A license in auto mechanics on know, But then I went up and I I asked for a meeting with the dean, I think it was the dean of admissions or something at Wilfrid Laurier University. And I think he was shocked that some young punk would come up and ask for a meeting. And uh, I asked him if he'd let me into the school, even though I didn't graduate from high school. And uh, he said, yeah, um, tell you what, we'll let you in on the basis of uh, kind of a temporary... A uh, thing where uh, if you achieve a certain grade level, which was I think a B or something like that, you can stay. If not, uh, you're out of here after one year. So I got into Wilfrid Laurier University that way by talking my way in. And uh, I-, I
0: didn't even know it was possible to go to university without finishing high school.
1: It isn't now. <laughs> uh, I've just been through a long week arguing with uh, Carleton University about getting my daughter into a master's program. She was uh, on the dean's honor roll three times for her bachelor's degree, won three scholarships, but they didn't like her economics mark and won't let her in for a master's degree. And the lack of common sense judgment in various places these days, and universities are no exception, Mm -hmm. it's just stunning to me. I don't don't know, we've we've evolved towards being more bureaucratic as Mm -hmm. a society, our institutions are now so foolishly rules bound that uh, we're keeping people, good people, away from uh, opportunities. Anyway, that, then I did, uh, I did really well in my ma- in my bachelor's. Went on and did a, a master's degree. Then went off to uh, England to do a uh, PhD on Canadian energy policy, and. Uh, I got recruited by the Foreign Service while I was still in London, so I never finished, I never defended the uh, doctorate, although I have it upstairs here in my files. 300 pages about uh, energy policy and Canadian federalism, which if you wrote it today, it would still be the same story. You know, the West is alienated from the Federation because they're not allowed to develop their energy resources and get them to market to to their ultimate advantage. So it's the same story, it weakens our federation. Anyway, I was recruited by Foreign Affairs and brought to Ottawa for the first time in my life. I'd never visited Ottawa. I got into the Foreign Service by sheer fluke. My tennis buddy, another Canadian in London, wanted a ride to the exam centre one Saturday morning in London. And I had a car, he didn't. So at that time you could go in and write the test and take your chances just without registering or anything. So I did that. I had a two hour parking meter, but only uh, enough for uh, two thirds of a three hour exam. So uh, when it came to the last part, which was the written part, I had to do it in, in a matter of minutes and rush out the door get in the car and move my car before they put the wheel boot on it, right? In London, they just introduced the boot, they called it. They put that right on your, on your wheel and you can't move unless you pay a hundred pounds or something like that to have it, have it removed. And that was as much as my tuition at that time. So there's no way. And I got in because I rushed through the written part. It was a long excerpt from uh, Hansard, the debates of the House of Commons that you had to summarize in under 500 words. And because I didn't get bogged down in the details on page 46 or whatever, I was able
0: to just summarize it very quickly.
1: That actually got me into the Foreign Service. So it,
0: it's just by sheer chance. And then the first part of my... I, I want to stop you there for a second, Randolph. Uh, you, you talk about sheer chance. And I'm a huge believer that sheer chance is one thing, but it, it, it's, it's awarded to those that have their eyes open and that can actually see opportunity in front of them. You know, is that like it, it's one thing to say it's luck or chance, but would you not agree that it takes a, a certain personality to actually understand... What an opportunity is in front of them, because a lot of people could just not see them.
1: You have to be a scrapper, you know, and, and to some extent, your background feeds into that. Being somebody who grew up extremely poor with no prospects, I mean, no model of a family member who went to university and went on to do anything except trades, which are great. You know, you had to be, there had to be something within you. That would make you want to scrap and and get to that level to go in and make a case for yourself to be allowed into university and and all that kind of stuff. There's there's serendipity. There's no question about it. But I think you're right. You have to have the grit, the drive to go after something that you think you want, whatever that might be.
0: And you mentioned earlier that you were the youngest of seven. I think about birth order a lot in terms (laughs) of where people land up in their lives, I'm the eldest of four, and you know, my, my mother would classify me as a very typical eldest child. How much of you know, that grit, that scrappiness, all those things you just mentioned, do you think is a result of you being the youngest of seven?
1: Well, now that you mentioned it, I mean, all the uh, bigger brothers had to try out their wrestling holds on me. So I guess I had to fight to survive. Yeah. It was uh, six boys, including myself, and one girl. The eldest was a girl. So she was like a second mom in a way because the age difference was so great. But, uh, yeah, you have, to, you have to survive within a, a family with limited means and limited resources and, frankly, limited food on the table. It really was that. You know, if there, were, if there were some meat on the table, you'd have to count very carefully the number of pork chops to make sure you got your piece, right? So I think, I think there's probably something
0: to that. So you, you know, now you're, you're back in Ottawa, so you know, going from New Dundee to then the university without a high school diploma, you know, then to London, uh, and now back to Ottawa. I guess by the time you landed in Ottawa, you, it's not like you weren't used to big cities. You just spent some time in London. But was there anything that was kind of eye-opening? I guess it's a very political city. What were the lessons that you learned when you, when you first landed there?
1: Well, it was a bit of a contrast. Remember, by that time, I'm, I'm comparing it to London, England. And it was London during the IRA bombing campaign. So we were constantly hearing bombs exploding in London. And you'd see signs everywhere if you if you see a parcel or a satchel on the subway, don't touch it, report it to the police. There was there was paranoia about bombing. So then I move over to Ottawa, and it's like the peaceable kingdom, right? Very quiet, very pretty green city lovely Gothic parliament buildings and a few other uh, iconic landmarks. The government itself, you enter into a bureaucracy and it's something, as you've been a student and growing up all your life in different uh, atmospheres, you're not prepared for, you can't be prepared for being slotted into a small space and being given a defined set of tasks that you have to do all day during your, your work day. And uh, I found that really hard. The transition uh, from London to Ottawa was fine in terms of the comfort of the city. It was quieter and safer. But being in a bureaucracy was, I tell you, I think I resisted it for about the first 10 years of my career. Just the feeling that, what is this? Where do I fit into this? Because at that level, you, you can't lead anything. You can only follow and so you're waiting for people to tell you and you never see the whole picture. You only see tiny little dots, tiny little pixels on what you understand must be a clearer picture to some people, picture of Canadian foreign policy and our interests and so on. It was a tough transition.
0: And when you, when you talk about that, I think that a lot of people earlier in their careers struggle with that exact point. It's such a good one where you're asked to complete tasks, but it's really difficult to find purpose in what you do if you if you don't understand why you're doing it right i think a lot of people screw up by not explaining to their employees what like the why you know i'll I'll steal that from simon sinek who i'm a a huge fan of because i am a big believer that motivation is fleeting if you don't understand why you're doing it how did you get through those 10 years what did you do to try and see the bigger picture were there steps that you took were there mentors that you got talk through some of that 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 frustration and getting past that frustration
1: well yeah sure it you know, I had done my first university degree in English literature, uh, combined with political science. So on the, on the government political science side, I was strong. On the English writing side, I thought I was very strong. But everything I wrote inside foreign affairs was immediately covered in red ink by my bosses. You know, and I realized very quickly that it's really the department of words, and there's a certain language of diplomacy that you had to learn that I had no clue about. It's not normal English and certainly isn't flowery prose the way you might study in English literature. So there was probably a decade of uh, just getting used to the language of diplomacy. But immediately my instincts of trying to, you know, the scrapper instincts to try to get something that was new and adventurous and different out of it, uh, clicked in again. And I saw that there was this opportunity every year for a junior officer like myself to go to Athens, Greece, to work on consular affairs for um, five months or so, right? So I positioned myself to go over to the consular bureau. Consular means it's the services we offer to Canadians abroad, the travelers who get in trouble, they lose their passport, so they get in trouble with drugs and stuff like that. It's not easy work, but it's interesting. And anyway, I positioned myself to get that internship. It's kind of an internship for junior officers in uh, Athens. So within a year, I was over in Greece, and I had uh, a waiting room. I, you know, never forget the first day I walked into the embassy. I had never been in an embassy before. I'm a diplomat at that point, right? One year in, and I get assigned out there I walk in the door and the waiting room is just full with people. And outside the door is a queue forming down the sidewalk. And I walk in and they let me in the secure section and the the consular admin lady greets me. And I say, who are are all those people waiting for? And she said, they're waiting for you. What? (laughs) They're waiting for me? And the boss, uh, who who was called the consul, greeted me and he said, well, I have, a, I have a medical need. I'm leaving, I'll be back in a few months. But um, these ladies here, these Greek local uh, staff will help you through uh, the learning process of how to help all those people. And so I was thrown in the deep end and uh, it was one thing after another. And I was treated so kindly by the local staff, the Greek ladies, they were all ladies that we had hired in Athens to help us with the consular low that uh, it was just one thing after another people who had been uh, who' been virtually kidnapped women who had been virtually like, held hostage by men uh, who had taken their passports away and their jewelry because you know a romantic relationship in the beginning had turned sour but the men wouldn't give them up and sort of that sort of thing. And, and uh, people in drug troubles and having to visit prisons and so on and so
0: forth. It was just an endless list. How, how, how old were you at that time?
1: I, was, I would have been about 27, 28, something like that. Pretty young, very green, very, very green. I mean, it, it's a big deal to go from university life in Waterloo to suddenly, you know, you're in Ottawa, and you don't know what you're doing, but now you're in Athens and you don't know what you're doing, but you better figure it out fast because there's a queue of people who want your service now. It's not writing memos and stuff like that or thinking about policy. It's service to the public.
0: What did you learn through that experience? I mean, was I know nothing about how that, you know, that works. What are the things that people just don't understand about that type of a role?
1: Well, first of all, you, you have a legal status in that country that you're sent to. You are the consul or the vice consul in my case. So you have a legal ability to exercise notarial powers, issuance of passports, processing of immigration documents, access to prisoners, depending on what the treaty arrangements are bilaterally between countries. You have a legal right, a power to enter into prisons and access Canadians as we did in, in Athens, and so on and so forth. It's a very long list. The Consular Manual is, is a very thick, used to be a very thick book that one would have to plow through to understand what the various capacities were. I guess there's all that content of the job that I had to learn. But the other part that I learned was how much trouble Canadians can get into when they're traveling abroad. It's, it's just beyond the imagination, right? Really.
0: So now you're in Athens, what's the next move for you in the career?
1: When I came back from Athens, they said, well, we've got to prepare you for a posting abroad, a real posting, like a full one, two years, three years sort of thing. And so a list came out of of places you could go, and I put my top five choices, and they said, "Uh, forget about that, we're going to send you to Stockholm, and we're going to First of all, give you French language training because you have to reach a certain level of French, which I didn't get in Waterloo or London, and so I did that for a number of months. And then I remember I graduated from the French course on a Friday, and on the Monday I was in Swedish language training, <laughs> so you can imagine how mixed up my languages were at that point. But they put me into Swedish language training and then sent me off to Stockholm. And, uh, you know, you have to remember that was during the Cold War. That's, 19, uh, that's 1983 to 85. The Cold War was at its height, really. And so I was made a delegate to the Stockholm Conference on uh, Security and Cooperation in Europe, which was, I don't know how much you know your European history, but there was this Helsinki Accord between the Soviet Union and the West, respecting human rights and allowing certain uh, access to individuals and so on. And then we took it a step further into this called Stockholm process, which was about early warning, confidence building, discussions on limits on troop movements so that you wouldn't accidentally trigger a nuclear war, essentially. So I was not only the the third secretary and vice consul in Stockholm, I was the delegate to this conference where Canada played quite a critical role. We were the caucus for NATO. So we built a safe speech room inside our embassy and and all sorts of madness ensued, you know, that was Cold War. So that was the, that was the Stockholm posting.
0: One of the things I really want to get to in particular with your background and experiences, I guess Canadians are very Canadian focused, right? I mean, we've historically had a hard time building international brands and businesses. You know, either we sell them prematurely or we kind of just focus on Canada and maybe we go down south to the U.S. I know when I speak to some people in business, there's this there's this innate fear with anything too foreign. What have you learned about, you know, doing business all around the world? Because I know the first time we chatted, you know, we were talking politics, but inevitably we landed up really discussing how you felt like you did more business. In your political career than you did in your private your private sector career, so maybe just talk about some of your experiences abroad and, and how different it is and whether people should be scared and you know how people should look at building international brands
1: It's a really tough thing and you know in the end generalizations about it aren't really that helpful at the business level because it, it really does come down to each and every business so Early in my career, I would interact with businesses who needed some help with government relations, usually about regulatory issues that might be blocking their their business. But those businesses who would show up in a place like Greece or Sweden had already made a decision that they, or may have already been involved in business there. They'd already bought the ticket, right? So there's this whole population of businesses who would never think of Greece or Sweden or later on the, the asian capitals that I was, I was in and getting at those businesses is really a case by case matter because you can't just say to somebody making widgets in uh, in cambridge that oh you should be looking at the japanese market because they might be making boilers for a good customer in north carolina and they're at their capacity and if you ask them To come over. First of all, that's a commitment of time and money to come over and explore a new market. They don't know what it is, they don't have contacts, so you fill that in for them. And uh, then there's this tricky decision about leaping over a culture with the confidence to sign a contract that is the basis for you to go back home and expand your capacity. Now you're into deep business risk, right? Because you're hiring employees, you're maybe building out uh, your factory, expanding it, or building another plant, because the demand, uh, I mentioned Japan for good reasons, because it was a perpetual problem when I was Canada's kind of chief lobbyist in Japan for so many years, that we would convince Canadian businesses to come, and uh, the demand would be so great, they'd be overwhelmed. They would think they, they were going to have to make uh, some great persuasive argument to their Japanese counterpart, but in fact, the Japanese counterpart would say, "Well." That's great product. Can I have, you know, two million of those uh, next month? <laughs> well, no, actually, we can't do that. Well, why not? You know, it would be that kind of thing, would strain our capacity. So there's something about the built-in infrastructure of what we have, each and every business, but then as a country, we've got infrastructure challenges that keep us from Asian markets. So that we know about the pipelines to the West and stuff like that. But it's that kind of thing that, that I picked up on quickly. You have to be very realistic about penetrating these markets. The opportunities are there, but meeting them is a is a business challenge filled with risk.
0: Well, if someone wants to do it, what are the key things that they should be considering? I assume they need to find someone with local knowledge, right? Like would, would you advocate against going it alone? Oh
1: yeah, yeah. In every, every country where I, where I worked, uh, In Japan, just to stick with that for a minute, I studied uh, Japanese for two years at the U.S. State Department School in Yokohama before I could even feel confident enough to take on the tasks that I was given, which was to be Canada's lobbyist at the Japanese parliament on behalf of uh, Canadian business, essentially. And uh, unless you've made that kind of time commitment to understanding the culture and the language it's pretty tough, but you can access it through people like me, through Canadians who are at the embassy or other business associations who can, uh, can be your springboard into that if you're so inclined. That gets, I mean, Japan's actually relatively easy compared to a place like Pakistan. Pakistan, which has, uh, you know, it's got a, a kind of a, Bad reputation, in in many cases, because uh, it's so unknown to people. But it's a great country, filled with very energetic and lively people, very smart. uh, Tremendous business opportunities. Accessing that goes very, very tricky because uh, of some political security issues that uh, lie underneath of uh,
0: business there. We always hear about the different cultural nuances in doing business in different parts of the world. How real are those differences?
1: Yeah, it's very real. I mean, I've talked about Japan, a little bit about Pakistan, but I, I've lived and worked twice in Indonesia, which is the fourth largest country in the world, and not very well known in Canada, but it does have a very different way of doing business compared to Japan or, or Pakistan, Malaysia, my other countries, Sweden, or certainly Canada. So you have to learn that. And again, it helps to have a bit of the language. I studied Indonesian in a city called Yogyakarta in Central Java, uh, which is their cultural capital. So you learn the culture and the language at the same time, and you start to absorb the ways of doing business. And it's it's a very different thing.
0: Can you give a few examples of what you mean by that? That might be eye opening for people listening to this.
1: Yeah, I'll give you a positive. I'll give you negative. Positive. Uh, I, I remember. I think I said this to you last time when I went back to. Uh, I was the ambassador to Indonesia on in my second posting, and I went back to uh, Waterloo to talk to the uh, co-CEO of Blackberry and asked him if he'd let me launch the Blackberry in Indonesia in 2003, and it wasn't there yet. And uh, he asked me, well, where is Indonesia, right? So I explained it all to him, and fourth largest country in the world, that's a surprise, but you know, do they have the money to buy our gadgets? Yes, that's a surprise. Fast forward, to when I actually worked for Blackberry many years later. And it was their world's largest market for that device. Indonesia was, not the US, not India, not China, you know. We could penetrate the Indonesian market. So that's a positive, right? Here's a negative. On my second assignment, I was uh, going along quite happily when I was approached by uh, Manulife insurance executives who said that uh, they were being uh, shut out of the Indonesian market. They were there, but they were being um, hampered by some regulations around the financial services industry applied only to foreigners that were very uh, deleterious to their interests. So, you know, it really didn't seem like it had much basis in law or the reality of what should be allowed for foreign companies. And it looked like they were being discriminated against versus others. so it became a, a very important file, an advocacy effort on behalf of myself and so on to get the government to stop uh, what turned into a legal proceeding against that company. And I, you know I saw things like that in Pakistan, where Barak was doing mining in uh, Balochistan province and again the. regulatory authorities came after them for what looked like very odd demands that didn't have much basis in law and so it became a primary advocacy activity on behalf of the company. So what I'm saying is sometimes these opportunities are fantastic and you know there's so much demand that you just unleash your product there and it just takes off and other times you get so bogged down in legal regulatory prejudices that aren't uh, always equally applied to everyone that you're stymied completely and you can waste a lot of money. So it really is good to have local knowledge, somebody to help you through that, to make sure uh, you can do your advocacy on a full court basis. You know, you can't rely on the embassy to do it all for you. You've got to have knowledgeable executives to help you through that, which was why eventually BlackBerry... Recruited me away from government when I was ambassador in Malaysia. They were being threatened with being shut down in a number of countries. So they brought me in to help them uh, turn those conversations around with various governments in
0: Asia. Let's move to the ambassadorship. So I assume that's what it's called. (laughs) You know, a lot of people, I don't think anyone's not heard the word ambassador, but I, I would think that most people don't really know what that entails. So maybe give us a crash course in what an ambassador really means and what what that day-to-day activity looks like.
1: Internally in the system, you're called the head of mission. And uh, if you go to uh, any regular country, you get the title ambassador, his or her excellency. So you have a very lofty formal title. If you go to a Commonwealth country, by the way, you're called a high commissioner. It's just one of these old traditions, right? It's the same as ambassador. You take a letter of credence, it's called, to from your head of state, in, in this case, it's our governor general, to the head of state of the receiving country. And there's a formal ceremony, the presentation of credentials, where you present your credentials to the king or the president, whoever is the head of state, and they receive it. And in receiving it, they've granted you these defined powers that are accepted in international relations the world over. And uh, those powers go beyond the consular ones that I spoke about earlier. They include consular and notarial uh, authorities and so on. But they give you the position of being the voice of Canada in our case. So I am the highest representative of the Canadian government. When I speak, it's the Canadian government speaking uh, to official, um, officials of the receiving government. And it's taken as that. And so the government can deliver messages through me that might be uh, kind or critical, and it's my job to deliver those, but it's also my job to represent every other Canadian interest in that country. So if you're a company that's doing business there and you're harmed, then you come to me and I try to uh, rectify the harm. Or if you have an interest that you want to pursue and you want to open something up, then you would come to the ambassador who would who would make his efforts, devise a plan with you, to open up the opportunities for you. And uh, the political relationship could could be a happy one or it could be a a very difficult one. So if you're you're ambassador in Pakistan, as I was, and there's a, a war going on across the border in Afghanistan, then your role is, my role in that case, was to work with the Pakistani authorities to get them to make sure the border between the two countries didn't allow the Taliban to go back and forth, killing our people in Kandahar and then retreating back and hiding in in Pakistan, as they were doing. So a lot of that kind of more technical border management security work is also the ambit of an ambassador. It's a much broader thing than that, much more detailed, but that gives you a bit of a snapshot of the kinds of things that you would do.
0: And did you enjoy it?
1: Well, I loved it. I mean, Finally, I understood what the job was, right? That first decade of my career, not understanding what it is we're doing. Now I have the big picture. Now I'm a person who helps to find the big picture. In Indonesia, unfortunately, uh, which was my first ambassadorial assignment by choice, the day I arrived, the Marriott Hotel was bombed by terrorists. So we went into a kind of a crisis mode. We immediately have to check for any Canadians who might've been victims. And then we had a bombing in Bali, and there were terrorist attacks everywhere. And then we got hit by a tsunami in 2004, the Indian Ocean tsunami, which wiped out hundreds of thousands of people in Aceh. So I was up in Aceh province, which is the top of the island of Sumatra, literally sleeping on concrete floors with flies buzzing around, trying to deal with uh, the absolute catastrophe that was this tsunami. I mean, there were bodies and body parts everywhere. There were orphans wandering the street, wondering where they would go next, their house, their families had been wiped out. You know, it was just everything. Plus, the the province was in the midst of a civil war that had to be brought to a conclusion peacefully very quickly so that aid could get in. I established a house called Canada House, broke every rule in the in the protocol book, opened up a house, put a Canadian flag on it. It's like a new embassy. You can't just do that, actually. But I did it and did it on behalf of everybody. So if you were an aid worker from whatever government, whatever country, you come to Canada House. I had a whole floor of computer terminals. I had internet. I had a place for people to, I mean, you sleep on the floor. But you, you had a place when up, when up a city and a province is completely wiped off the planet of the earth. You need a place actually physically to set up. If you're going to help them restore the water and sanitation, the health services, uh, housing for the orphanages, education system, the whole thing had to be rebuilt. So we were right at the center of it.
0: That was an exciting thing. You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll re- relate it back to business. A huge part of my thesis of you know, entrepreneurs that are successful is they have an incredible amount of resiliency where you know, they can go through one thing after another of you know, bad things happening in their business and they have to pivot and HR issues, whatever it might be. And they're kind of a glass half full individual. But like, those are business things. I mean, it's completely different when you're seeing like human catastrophe at the level that you're just talking about. How do you separate that personally and stay sane in the midst of real catastrophe? I mean, even when I talk about catastrophe in business terms, and you talk about you know the recession in in, in 08, wherever it might be, it's still just dollars and cents, and you know that's not real catastrophe. So, what have you learned about like the human spirit, and the resiliency, and, and what is it in you that that allows you to kind of stay calm in those sorts of situations?
1: It does become personal. But in terms of human resiliency, it's, it's uh, you see it in the faces of children. That's where I saw it in, in Aceh amid all that destruction. When we finally gathered up as many orphans as we could and created an orphanage and we went in, you see the children laughing and playing. They're, they're children. They've got that human spirit that isn't developed and mature, but it's just pure and raw. And that kind of inspires you to continue when you see that. I and mean, it sounds kind of Pollyannish, but... It really is in the faces of the children. You know, when I got to Pakistan, here's one of the the horrible ironies of my career. Literally the first week of my posting in Islamabad, the Marriott Hotel, like the Marriott Hotel in Jakarta, but this time Islamabad, was blown up by terrorists. And uh, I was supposed to be there. I would met the Czech ambassador that week, my first week. And we were... uh, we're both golfers, so we thought, well, let's, let's have a game of golf on Saturday, and then we'll go over to the Marriott where he was living temporarily with his young wife. And, um, and we'll have some sushi, because there was a Japanese restaurant with an actual Japanese chef. And so Saturday came along, and we were all set to do that. And suddenly uh, President Zardari called an emergency meeting of the Congress, both houses. And so ambassadors are called over, and I went had to cancel, but he didn't go, and uh, he stayed at the Marriott, and uh, I got back to my house and I heard this big boom, and literally the windows shook, and these were, these were armored windows, right, because we're heavily fortified in Islamabad, in a compound, I had 200 guards protecting me, but you hear this big boom, and I know from even when I was a student in London, that's a bomb. And uh, you turn on the TV, boom, within, within minutes, you've got cameras at the Marriott Hotel and smoke coming out, starting to get now. And there are figures standing on the roof and on some of the balconies as the flames are coming up towards it. And sure enough, I see the Czech ambassador, the guy I was supposed to be golfing with and having sushi with, on one of the balconies with his young uh, Asian wife. And he's waving the handkerchief, you know, trying to get some help. Pakistani uh, rescue services aren't like they would be here, so you know they were trying their best. They perished in the fire; they never got out. Of it. And you know that really makes it a personal thing. This is in the midst of of heavy uh, security threats, a war going on in Afghanistan, where I've been leading the Afghanistan civilian task force for a little while from Ottawa. And traveling to Af- uh, Afghanistan with the governor general and with uh, the foreign minister, and so on. And now you realize you're in a very dangerous place. You understand why you've got the 200 guards. All the while, both in Indonesia, when we were dealing with those crises, and in Pakistan, we're still doing business. There are still companies, Canadian companies, who need advocacy on their behalf, whether it's Manulife or Barrack or what have you, need help. So that kind of business life goes on even through the crises.
0: So how do you build a family moving all over the world? How do you maintain a relationship? You know, I think that a lot of people, because I, I like talking about some of these things as well, because I think people kind of overlook it. But you've got to have a pretty strong, significant other to deal with these sorts of changes and movement. What have you learned about maintaining a relationship in hostile territory, moving around the world? You know, Starting a family, I know you mentioned you had a daughter in university right now, so you obviously built a family as well. Talk a little bit about about that.
1: It's tough. The foreign service takes a heavy toll on families, and I myself was divorced just before I went to Pakistan. I couldn't take my family to Pakistan anyway. It's an unaccompanied post, they call it. There's no way I would take my wife and, and children into a conflict zone like that or a danger zone. So uh, what had been arranged was that my wife, who then became my ex-wife, would be posted in Singapore. And so the kids would go to an international school there. So at least if they're in Singapore and I'm in Islamabad, it's an easy flight back and forth. So uh, we maintained very close, surprisingly close family ties that way. And I would go back and stay with them in Singapore uh, during my entire time there. I remarried then three years ago, and uh, we have a blended family now. My ex-wife uh, lives down the street, and we're all very close. We celebrate our thanksgivings and Christmases together and significant events like that as a kind of a blended family. But my wife, who I married three years ago, doesn't know me as an ambassador, knows me as a businessman working mm-hmm. for Blackberry, working for SICPA, and a private consultant, that sort of thing. So. Well, the stories about diplomacy and so on are are just stories, abstractions to, to her and her two daughters. But it's a wonderful life at this stage, you know, especially with COVID and the lockdown. It feels like my posting in Pakistan where I was basically in lockdown for two years. I was in a compound behind huge walls, barbed wire, 200 guards, I don't have all that, but it's still the same effect where you have to stay home and be protected. Now, I didn't have family there. When I stayed home, it really was alone. I eventually, after the Marriott Hotel uh, bombing, I turned my official residence, which was a huge house, into a hotel for visiting Canadians. So you know, I think it was like a five-bedroom house that I turned into a seven-bedroom house by putting beds in rooms that weren't bedrooms. And I said, Any, it's too dangerous to stay at the hotels. Any Canadian coming in to do business, you stay at the official residence behind those walls and so on. So that way I had people around me. Here I've got family around me. And it's uh, in some strange way the nicest contrast in my life that, yes, I have to be pinned down, but I've got a loving family around me. And they're all doing incredibly interesting things. And uh, it's a fun time.
0: So you alluded to the fact. And just not to transition too quickly. I totally agree with you. I think this whole COVID thing has been incredibly interesting to see people kind of embrace it. Uh, I've never been closer with my children. When I say to people, I'm actually enjoying myself. They look at me like I'm strange, but I'm a very social person. And I was on probably 50 planes last year. Uh, It's really taught me that, A, I don't need to do that. B, I need to spend way more time at home and you could be just as effective and you could be just as productive. You just got to be disciplined. So yeah, I totally agree with you. I think people that fight against it are the ones that aren't having an easy time with it. I think you have to embrace it. There's no alternative in my opinion. So you you alluded to the fact that you transitioned from, you know, a a life of politics into business. You moved to BlackBerry in 2012. How was that transition for you? Because that's a radically different uh, thing.
1: It is in, in some ways, but, you know, in other ways, it had begun in Japan in the 1990s. I worked as I said, as the kind of the chief lobbyist for Canadian interests in Japan. I was in he- the head of what's called diet relations. Diet is their name of their parliament. So the entire decade of the 90s was occupied with doing business in Japan. So that was very much a part of what I was about by that point, which really prepped me up nicely for being an ambassador in Indonesia, which was all you know, apart from the crisis management, was really business. When you're an ambassador, you're working with CEOs to uh, try to expand Canadian trade and investment. And by Malaysia, I was working on what turned out to be the single largest investment Canada had ever received, which was the Petronas investment in LNG development. And uh, it was valued uh, officially at $36 billion, but unofficially, it was worth a lot more it was double that over the 25-year period. That's all been folded now into kind of a a consolidated group under Shell's umbrella, still working on the same project and hoping to be able to get natural gas to uh, to Asian markets. But I've worked a lot on that and helicopter sales and aircraft sales. I mean, you name it, technology, uh, biotech, all kinds of things. Everything that, that uh, comes across your plate is immediately your interest. So when BlackBerry came, and I was already at 31 years in my career, and they said, we really need some help because we're being threatened with shutdowns and we'd like you to come and join us. I was open to it, and uh, I felt that I'd done as much as I could. I mean, I did my doctoral thesis on energy policy and my last assignment. I was working on the biggest energy investment that Canada had ever seen. That's pretty good symmetry. So I thought, okay, this is not a bad time. And they wanted me to locate in Singapore. My family was in Singapore, as I mentioned. So I went down and, and did that and uh, worked a lot with governments around the region to put a stop to these notions of shutting Blackberry down. Tried very hard to get China opened up for Blackberry, but that's another story that you can just imagine uh, was, was incredibly difficult. And so it felt very good. But my job was government relations, not sales. Where I had a bit of an issue with that was, you know, we said this before, as an ambassador, my job is government relations. But it's also kind of sales. I mean, you're not doing government relations for the sake of government relations. We want business. We want this company to sell its products or services in your country. And that's the way I felt about BlackBerry. And they, you know, there's a certain holding back to keep the government relations people in their lane, and um, I found that to be a kind of an interesting approach in business. I would have expected those lanes to be blended more than in the bureaucracy, you know, where people are slotted in. But uh, nevertheless, what what every conversation ended up as was not only should you not shut down BlackBerry, but because it's such a secure device. You should be buying it. And we'll send a team in to demonstrate its great uh, properties for you so that you can consider making a a government or a military purchase of this secure communications device. So, uh, you know, I was very much in that mindset, having uh, convinced uh, the co-CEO of BlackBear Jim Ball Silly to let me launch the product in 2004. It was early 2004 when I did it at the Meridian Ballroom. So, you know, a decade later, I was very much in that headspace. And then when BlackBerry uh, hit its rough patch and uh, things turned down, and all the senior executives basically had to go because they couldn't, couldn't afford such an expansionist, uh, such a big team around the world, then I was picked up by a Swiss company called SICPA that provides secure ink for virtually all of the world's currencies as well as those uh, labels you have to break on the whiskey bottles and the cigarette packs and so on. Those are secure devices for tracking and tracing of products. And uh, so I worked for them for a while in uh, Asia, but very much fitting in the mold of what I've been doing in government. It's just that you drill down specifically to one company. You don't have to worry about all the other companies that are asking you to advocate on their behalf.
0: So I know we only have an hour and we've already done 55 minutes. I'm going to, I'm going to try and stick to it. I could uh, ask you questions for the next three hours. Um, But one of the reasons this podcast is called a dealmaker's DNA is I I always like to ask our guests their view on nature versus nurture. I think I had this discussion briefly with you a couple of uh, maybe a week or so ago, but what's your view? I mean, can you be whatever you want to be or is there limitations based on, you know, how you were born and, the genetics that, that make you, you?
1: I don't think you can be whatever you want to be. There are many things I cannot be. I, you know, it's, it's like Dirty Harry Clint Eastwood said in that final scene, a man's got to know his limitations, right? You do have limitations. But I'll tell you this, an interesting thing I learned in Stockholm, which was my very first full posting, you know, Athens was a shorter one. I thought at a certain point, I'd been very shy when I was young might be hard to believe now, but I was extremely shy. had difficulty talking in public. And I said to myself in Stockholm when I just got there, I said, I cannot sustain this Randolph-Mann. And he cannot have success in this kind of career. You have to reinvent yourself to be this person now, the diplomat who hosts things, who gives speeches and advocates and has the force of personality. You have to reinvent yourself. We didn't use the word avatar back then, but it's almost like creating an avatar that is a new you. And I remember very vividly now this process of looking in the mirror and reinventing myself and just going for it. And it was difficult at the time, but I literally had to recreate myself. I would call that adaptation between nature and nurture. I guess it's true there are limitations on on what you do because of your your genetics, I suppose, and and so on. But you can also reinvent yourself. If you're driven to uh, do a particular thing you want to do, if you're motivated, you can simply go about reinventing yourself if you've got the gumption to do
0: it. And I would say that that, that adaptability and that self-awareness is also based, to some degree, in genetics. (laughs) So uh, it's a tough question, there is no right answer. I just, uh, I like people to really double down on self-awareness and, you know, double down on on what they're good at. I've always said that self-awareness is the key that unlocks potential because if you, if you know what you're good at and you know what you're not good at, you can spend all the time focusing on the things that you're good at. You know, I've never understood people that focus on their weaknesses because there's someone who's strong there. I'm going to focus on my strengths. Why would Michael Jordan focus on, you know, being better at doing his taxes versus focusing on uh, his jump shot sounds like a much better plan focusing on his jump shot. <laughs> that's and, a good uh, point. You know, that, that's always been my viewpoint is, is, is being self-aware enough to know where you should be focusing and where you hold an edge, because I think that's where you could find great success. And typically the things that you're good at are the things that you enjoy most as well. So I think you could find fulfillment. I
1: think you're right. And I don't know Michael Jordan, but I, I think I've, I've become good at helping businesses expand into markets that they might be afraid of or not aware of and so on, holding hands and and working with them and and then driving advocacy of their interests forward. I think that's, that's probably my thing.
0: That's a perfect last transition because I was about to ask you where business owners and entrepreneurs can find you if they are looking to enter new markets and they think that uh, you could be a great resource for them and help advise in that process.
1: Yeah, well, I have this uh, this consultancy called Manc Global, which can be found at mancglobal.com. And, uh, you know, I, I can be reached in Ottawa anytime and uh, always open to helping people, whether it's board director work or advisory, whatever whatever the, the case might be. You need to have a conversation about whether, you know, you honestly think you can add value to whatever the business is, but... Uh, Definitely open to approaches.
0: Well, I, I can't imagine anyone better uh, for the job uh, with, with your international experience. So Randolph, thank you so much for participating. I, I, I enjoyed this immensely. My own curiosity probably got in the way of some, some deeper questions. I'm just fascinated by your life story and, and learning a little more about the, the political side of, of foreign policy, because it's something I, I know very little about. Um, so, so thank you uh, for entertaining my, my curiosity. No
1: problem. It's been a pleasure. Lovely to talk to you anytime.
0: Thank you very much. All right. Well, thanks again, everyone, for uh, joining and uh, look forward to next week's episode. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.